thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last report, we discussed excerpts from my last book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, with selections concerning the industrialist-founded Christian Economics Organization of the 1950s and beyond, which had a highly successful propaganda effort to turn America's clergy and their parishioners against the poor, working class, and others needing assistance or advocacy to counter the domination of Wall Street. We ended by reviewing actual old newsletters from the CIA online, which were evidently previously classified files on the organization revealing its age-old wealth class value system and exploitation of the poor and immigrants, including those overseas. In this next installment, we will, fi- we will note some final comments on the single Christian economics newsletter that we've been citing from for weeks in the CIA archives on the organization and what it reveals about a value system now reflected in today's religious right and its long-term legacy on the views of America's religious public, and then transition to two academic studies on the wealth obtained in-house within the second generation, organizational progeny of these founding fathers of American conservative Christian media, all non-profit, supposed religious and charitable organizations, circa 1980. We now proceed with the continuation of the narrative from my book. Other articles in the same periodical edition recommend dealing with foreign economic competition by further decreasing worker wages, 
with no mention of decreasing corporate profit targets or executive pay. The sermonette in the edition, evidently written to provide the gospel to the poor, as Christ announced when starting his ministry, noted, aside from a single generic Bible verse, that, quote, when men become accustomed to living from subsidies, bounties, long-continued charity, or any means of sustaining themselves by the effort of others, they lose confidence, integrity, courage, initiative, and independence and seek more and more to cast the burden of his life upon his neighbors, the taxpayers. Herein lies the soul-destroying evil intent in any type of collectivism, call it socialism, fascism, communism, or welfare statism. That which teaches him to obtain as much as possible of his living from the labor of others is from Satan, This comes from their newsletters. On the front page, they did announce their survey of ministers nationwide, revealing that all but 43 of the 1,961 ministers replying to a test mailing received Christian economics, with roughly 40% reading it regularly. That's 40% of the clergy. And almost half finding it, quote, very useful or fairly useful. And 43% quote, were in general agreement with the views expressed in Christian economics, and another 32% agreeing half the time, causing uh, them at Christian economics to declare that, quote, the freedom philosophy is expounded in Christian economics finds increasing acceptance, unquote. This is the kind of information we've been citing for weeks. However, with all the letters from pastors included that extolled the virtues of the periodical, they did include a letter from a Reverend Paul Lindau of Iowa who wrote, quote, I wish to thank someone for sending Christian economics to me as it has given me a bit of insight into the imaginations of the human mind. Any similarity between the views generally expressed in Christian economics and the gospel of Jesus Christ are the result of sheer rationalization, and I would appreciate if you would remove my name from the list. All this thought-provoking content we've been covering uh, on, on this newsletter for the last few weeks, and much more, was derived from a single four-page bulletin. Kirshner's influence still extends today. One webpage still online at the time of this writing appears to be connected to an organization that somehow affiliates itself with the Emmaus Walk, a spiritual event that is widely acclaimed by a wide array of Christian communities, but unknown as to its affiliation here, and features a talk of Howard Kirshner, who ran Christian Economics, from a 1966 edition of Lutheran Digest entitled, quote, the future of the welfare state, unquote. It is classic Kirshner stating up front that, quote, the welfare state is based upon the concept that some have a right to more than they produce as they live by the sweat of the brows of other people and based upon coveting and stealing. As those who, quote, disregard the commandments of the Almighty do not long continue to prosper, he adds that, Quote, no welfare state has ever been able to produce as abundantly as the states that have a free economy. The welfare state and free enterprise are therefore in conflict with each other. 
They cannot permanently exist side by side. One will conquer and the other will disappear. We must stop misinterpreting our Christian religion. Now, I don't know if the single mother who left a wife-beating husband with her kids or, or lost one to his death or lost their legs or eyes due to injury or by birth defect or succumbed to mental illness or other medical conditions actually focused on covetousness or exploiting the producers when they asked for immediate help to help feed their children through the end of the month. While the libertarians have their intellectual debates over how to make these elderly infirmed into good entrepreneurs and Wall Street speculators, you know, something respectable and that God could respect. <clears throat> we'll now share some uh, additional data from this period that reflects a small part of the scope of financial investments that prominent businessmen and their businesses have made in some of the most iconic evangelical ministries are those that are lesser known yet by their personnel and amount of funding, are immensely influential behind the scenes. The academic journal document site JSTOR offers for online readers with free accounts read-only access to a paper uh, publishing the findings of a study commissioned by the World Student Christian Federation in July 1980. The paper, entitled Whose Gold is Behind the Altar? Corporate Ties to Evangelicals begins by stating that religious nonprofit organizations, this is in 1980, exhibit a surfeit of financial data or means to identify individual donors due to a lack of requirements to file such data with regulatory agencies, which make such organizations ripe for abuse, and thus is typically only gleaned from scant public sources, which is at best a gross underestimate. Now, none of this has never changed today. It's even worse. They focused on evangelical organizations with membership or constituency of 100,000 or more, or annual revenues of 2 million or more, which comprised a total of 28 organizations to focus on in their study. They note that a church does not have to file an IRS Form 990 financial disclosure, as do other tax-exempt organizations, and do not even have to inform the IRS as to their existence. Now, I'll mention that Focus on the Family and a lot of your other major parachurch organizations are now technically called churches, even though they don't have services or such, to be able to avoid any kind of disclosure to anyone of what they're up to. Now, back to the narrative. They, they identified more than $20.5 million, this is 1980, given to 18 of these organizations from 1975 to 1980. They note that three-quarters of the total, or $15.5 million, came just from the individual Nelson Bunker Hunt alone, the oil man, with most going to Campus Crusade, with the remaining funds coming from 37 foundations and individuals. Of this remaining amount, most of it went to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Garden Grove Community Church of Robert Schuler fame, Oral Roberts Evangelical Association, Billy Graham Evangelical Association, Young Life, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and the Christian Anti-Communism Crusade. They write that, quote, amongst the most notable donors are the Pew family interest, divided among five foundations and trust, with a combined total of over $1 million in, $1 million in 1980 over the period, and adding that, quote, the Pew family has been a longtime contributor to numerous ultra-conservative causes, unquote. 
Ironically, they also note that a large sponsor to groups such as Campus Crusade, the Church League of America, and the teetotaler Baptist Jerry Falwell's moral majority is the Coors Beer Brewery family. The Billy Graham Association is similarly funded by the Mormon Marriott family and other groups by the notorious William Randolph Hearst. They note that all these evangelical organizations are interconnected with common staff and representatives, forming a, quote, complex web. The authors write that the data suggests that, quote, the work of these evangelical groups must be seen in a partisan relationship with the wealthy elite. They observe that the evangelical organizations of the right wing who promote economic conservatism are, quote, closely tied with very powerful corporate interests, such as the Joseph Coors family, the Pew family, the leaders and owners of Amway Corporation, Floor Corporation, Rockwell International, and others. Now, the authors write that, quote, Campus Crusade has grown to be a huge organization with widespread domestic and international activities. It is well-funded through Bright's major corporate connections and is strongly political. Over the last decade, it has experienced substantial growth from an $8 million budget in 1968 to $18 million in 1972 and more than $30 million in 1976. It's pretty big growth. In 1976, the full-time staff of Campus Crusade numbered 5,000 in 82 countries and headlined by major contributions by the Pew and the DeVos families, the latter being of Amway. They add that, quote, in 1977, founder Bill Bright launched the $1 billion campaign, Here's Life, to train 5 million persons from 50,000 churches by 1980. And by, quote, by 1980, the campaign had succeeded in raising $170 million, 1980 dollars, and it extended its billion-dollar deadline to 1982. Now, that's a lot of clout and influence in worldly financial terms. The authors also gave a few examples of Campus Crusade's political emphasis, such as Bill Bright's endorsement of the Martial Law Government of South Korea saying that, quote, there is no religious repression here. It's only political, and I believe it is a good cause. Those in prison are involved in things they shouldn't be involved in, unquote. And the emphasis of their recent, quote, Washington for Jesus rally. See, this kind of stuff's not new. To, quote, overcome U.S. military weakness, inflation, and general economic disintegration. You know, the kind of things Jesus cared about. While the Here's Life campaign was to use, quote, local prayer groups, Bible study meetings, and Sunday schools to create a grassroots constituency to elect right-wing congressional candidates, with groups provided a copy of the book One Nation Under God for the study of, quote, Christian economics. Now, that book argues that the most important occurrence since the birth of Jesus was the formation of the United States and that free enterprise system is a manifestation of the Christian idea. Its author is a director of the National Association of Manufacturers. This is what they were paying for Campus Crusade to dole out. The authors note that, quote, the Christian economics platform included the abolition of the minimum wage, the institution of right-to-work laws, 
an increased military budget, and a balanced federal budget, and the elimination of taxes used for social reform purposes. Bright explained in 1975 that there was the very real possibility of a foreign power taking over our nation and the fact that our economy could collapse. The Campus Crusade materials with it also included a book on, quote, winning elections and congressional voting records on free competitive enterprise with correct votes as listed were, quote, for decreased food stamp benefits and such. Jesus would be so proud of that. The main financiers of this work were Amway Chief Richard DeVos, who was also head of the Christian Freedom Foundation, CFF, the publisher of Christian Economics at the time, uh, and, as you know, connected to Betsy DeVos and others. Only organization representative candidates who chose Ronald Reagan over Republican Nelson Rockefeller were chosen to represent Campus Crusade in each congressional district. Another group sent 120,000 pastors in 1976 a letter urging them to buy Bill Bright's pamphlet, Your Five Duties as a Christian Citizen, showing how Christians should take over local government precincts. After much of these works were exposed by the Christian Sojourners publication, much of it was shut down or went underground. Meanwhile, Here's Life raised more than $170 million by spring 1980 with Nelson Bunker Hunt, quote, a John Birch Society Council member, having donated $10 million and made chairman of its Financial Controls Committee, as Hunt was able to raise $20 million more from several hundred businessmen at a 1980 retreat, including Pepsi, Coors, Mobile Oil, and Coca-Cola. The authors also mentioned Jerry Falwell's, quote, 95 theses for the 1980s, including number 16, in which, quote, the free enterprise system of profit be encouraged to grow, being unhampered by any socialistic laws or red tape, unquote. The authors point out that the endorsements and political voting positions virtually always agree with positions taken by the Chamber of Commerce. Now, the authors also point out the emerging power of the burgeoning religious broadcasting and media empire. Just as cable TV was starting, and before the advent of the universal reach of the Internet, they note that the national religious broadcasters, called NRBA at the time, stated then in 1980 that its 900-member TV and radio organizations reached 129 million listeners and viewers in the U.S. each week, with 1,400 of the nation's 8,000 radio stations being owned by NRBA members, with a new radio station each week and a new TV station each month, and with religious broadcasting being a $1 billion a year industry in 1980 level of technology and reach, and in 1980 dollars. They show the top five televangelists bringing in from $30 million to $60 million each in 1979, and another five at $13 million to $25 million. They note that Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN, was the largest supplier of 24-hour cable programming in the world. The authors conclude by noting that secular right-wing political activist insiders pursued fundamentalists and evangelicals because, quote, 
They found in the evangelical movement a potential constituency for their formerly unsellable economic program, a program that historically has lacked popular support because it simply goes against most people's interests. In turn, they say, quote, the conservative Christian leaders have likewise benefited, gaining political sophistication as a result of this alliance with the right. Interestingly, they note a 1980 Gallup poll that noted that, quote, only 13.3% of the born-again respondents said that they like Reagan very much and that they felt that drug abuse and alcoholism were issues that were the biggest threat to the welfare of the family. Okay, this is 1980. While homosexuality and abortion were at the bottom of the poll's numbers of their concern. Obviously, this cartel of religious right leadership and big business had to use the latter's big dollars and the public forums, local and national, in sacred privilege position of public trust of the former to perform a psyop on America's evangelicals to push them into beliefs and actions against their very instincts. The authors note that the implications of their findings then in 1980 would obviously raise questions of, quote, the meaning which Christianity will take in the future, unquote. Now, at the time of their writing, at the dawn of the modern religious right, they would have no idea of the extent of its impact on America and the world, and the worldview and personal spiritual concepts of evangelical Christians and their reputations in the eyes of their fellow citizens, culminating in the Trump evangelical axis in recent years. Now, a similar report available online for right-wing organizations, both religious and secular, using the very limited reported data uh, available that obviously cannot reflect covert contributions, and therefore also a gross underestimate. For 1962, shows a top recipient in 1962 dollars is Carl McIntyre's 20th Century Reformation Hour, pulling in over $1.1 million in 1962 dollars. That's a group we're not as familiar with today. With the John Birch Society close behind with about $1 million, Billy James Hargis, Christian Crusade, we've talked about recently, with $775,000, and Dr. Schwartz's Christian Anti-Communism Crusade at $725,000. Curiously, the less extreme religious pro-business groups, such as Kirshner's Christian Freedom Foundation, had fallen out of the top ten from 1958 to 1962, although the overtly racist Citizens Councils of America and Christian Nationalist Crusade, under racist and Holocaust denier Gerald L. K. Smith, were still on the top tier list. This is of Christian groups getting money, as well as the Liberty Lobby, which I will talk about in a later book, most of them being tax-exempt. By 1963, the annual income of the 20th Century Reformation Hour had risen to $1.7 million in traceable income, added to the overwhelming amount of untraceable income, such as advertising and organizational periodicals that were donated, gift subscriptions, that kind of thing. The report gives large tables of the top corporate heads, foundations, and financiers' funding, these racist, anti-Semitic, and other hard-right top national organizations profiled. 
The report also notes that the rate of increase of giving to these top hard right, many of them racist, organizations was increasing at a rate of 17% per year based upon the small amount they could trace through public sources, judging from the eight-year data collection uh, trend line they'd constructed. A supplement to this report in 1967 showed that these groups' funding increased by another 40% in the two years from 1963 to 1965. The John Birch Society alone had grown from $1.6 million to $4 million, with $5 million in 1966 and $3.1 million for the 20, 20th Century Reformation Hour. Now, to put these numbers into perspective today, a web-based calculator that can convert prior year numbers into inflated 2019 dollars, when I wrote this, reveals that $1 in 1962, as in this report, would equal $8.50 in 2019. Thus, all the numbers just cited in the last report from 62 should be multiplied by 1.85 at the time of writing to be relevant to the current days. Uh, the 1966 data should be multiplied by 7.92 and the 1980 by 3.11. To update my book data, my book was written in 2019. By, by this date, these numbers should be increased respectively for, at 1962 to 10.12, 9.43, and 3.71 for the years 62, 66, and 1980 respectively. In their time, it brought a formidable amount of influence. Now, we're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available in print and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other retailers. And I encourage you to get a copy of it, to study it, and fully comprehend the implications of the data that we disclose here and elsewhere in the book. What we have seen here is that from that time in 1940, when Reverend Fifield, as we talked about some time ago, gave that fateful speech to the National Association of Manufacturers, a major portion of our nation's clergy have been sometimes naively, and sometimes for their own selfish enrichment, been swayed by some Christian, Balaam-like, financially bought false prophets. They knew that if they promoted another gospel, apart from the teachings of the Old Testament and Gospels that highly regarded the poor, the workers, immigrants, and non-empowered or well-connected, and rather praised the magic and virtues of capitalistic exploitation, greed and obsession with money, and Darwinistic competition in the marketplace, and made contemptible accusations of those less ruthless and therefore less successful or valuable in worldly terms that such values, although opposed to Bible virtues, but dressed in Christian terminology, would not only attract the large dollars of enrichment and mass marketing influence by a deep-pocketed industry who would put the, uh, bucks behind their virtues that they had a hard time selling otherwise, but that it would also be swallowed easily by an American Christian community that never highly valued instruction on wisdom or understanding, and fed the egos and lust of both the clergy and the parishioners who followed them without question. In our next report from my book narrative, we will discuss on a family little known to have arguably the biggest influence on the founding of the modern right political movement, 
Funded by a family business product loved by many, but controversial to many fundamentalist Christians who loved the political clout they wielded. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefings, which will explore further a subject broached last week concerning the hidden background of the subject of the cinematic work that has become a craze within the Christian community today. But before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. While I had been shocked and then disheartened by the corrupt and self-serving mindset and inner values shown by my fellow Bible Belt Christian neighbors, friends, and family members, and I'm working my way through the grief cycle of disbelief, bargaining, anger, and, and to acceptance, I am most angry with those who consider themselves shepherds of the flock, who have exploited the situation for their own enrichment in addition to being inexcusably misguided and a stumbling block to those following God, for which they will be judged far worse. The silver lining is, I think, God has used the last eight or so years, and probably extending back at least to the anti-Sharia mania of 2010 to 2012, and maybe even through the Red Scare, and the early glory days of the Klan even, to painfully smoke them out. Like the young Goodman Brown character of literature I cited early in my reports here, I now view most of them as a danger to grassroots, simple folk laymen and spiritual seekers who have shown themselves to be hired prophets like Balaam and squandered their spiritual leadership birthright like Esau. We as non-professional spiritual seekers are going to have to help each other find truth and reject this wealth-loving, worldly value system they now teach to their own enrichment. We must personally reject these values and select those for the betterment of the entire human race. I, for one, am going to follow the humble fisherman who gave all he had instead of taking. Johnny Cash sang about him to great career risk. Ponder the words of, quote, I'm going to try to be that way, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. Once upon a time there lived a man mm-hmm. Many years ago in a foreign land Knew how to live right Tried to be a light Gave everybody a helping hand I'm gonna try to be that way mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to be that way Do the kind of thing A man ought to do Say the kind of thing A man ought to say I'm gonna try to be that way He never done anybody wrong He tried to help everybody long He brought a better plan To make a better man Out of the rich or the poor Or the weak or the strong And you know that I'm gonna try to be that way Hey, hey I'm gonna try to be that way Do the kind of things, Lord man ought to do, say the kind of thing a 
man ought to say, hey, I'm gonna try to be that way. And he preached love and brotherhood, uh-huh. He went around doing good, doing good. Everywhere he went, they knew that he was sent. And the people started acting like they should. And I'm gonna try to be that way. Hey, hey. I'm gonna try to be that way. Do the kind of thing a man ought to do. Say the kind of thing a man ought to say. I'm gonna try to be that way I'm gonna try to be that way Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. Last week, our good friend Adam, Agent Adam, mentioned a story of a new conspiracy theory circulating amongst Christians these days that Theaters are purposely sabotaging screenings of the movie Sound of Freedom, whose commando uh, leader, supposed child rescuer, has become a new folk hero in their circles, feeding their infatuation with the child trafficking subject that is energized by QAnon insinuations of adrenochrome chemical harvesting, like the satanic panic scares of yore. His story got me to doing some research on the subject of this movie and how his branding of this gentleman is coming apart. And I just started a report last week when the show ended, so I'm now going to resume that investigative report as one of many to come, I suspect. Now, you know, 20 years ago, Christian folk who heard you or I, I'm talking about people like Adam or me, maybe some of you, talk about conspiracies and weird stuff, thought we were out of our marbles. But in recent years, and with the inevitable infiltration of corrupting, meme-driven QAnon nonsense into their sheltered, gullible minds, and the stolen election and vaccine conspiracy conspiracies, largely devoid of evidence, further alienating them from reality, they are strangely beginning to make guys like you, maybe you and me, look like sensible voices of reason. There may be something nefarious here. I I don't totally discount some isolated management protest here and there, along with a lot of exaggeration of events and perceptions by means of social media sharing. But what we what may be more nefarious is yet another indication that the Christian community here may have been misled again by a savior of the day with a great manufactured image, but a different story in real life and behind the scenes, just like their favorite preachers. 
Vice is probably a news source not many Christians here read. But if Jesus is the truth and considers truth-seeking a pursuit of blessing, then Vice has been doing the Lord's work in pursuing the truth behind this human trafficking mania that no Christians seem motivated to vet. Back on December 2020, in their article, quote, a famed anti-sex trafficking group has a problem with the truth, with the subtitle, backed by Donald Trump, Operation Underground Railroad has flourished in the age of QAnon, but not all of its stories hold up to scrutiny, unquote. There they reported that, quote, Ballard, I'm at Tim Ballard, is the founder, former CEO, and the most public face of Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR, I'll call that OUR, a charity founded in 2013 with a mission of fighting human trafficking domestically and abroad. OUR says that its frontline workers include, quote, former CIA, past and current law enforcement, and highly skilled operatives, unquote, and for years has described them literally snatching children and young women from the hands of traffickers and daring raids. It has, it says, rescued literally thousands of victims. More recently, as false conspiracy theories about elites abducting and sexually enslaving children have proliferated, the group's fundraising and prominence have risen to new heights, and it has attracted an intensely passionate and loyal following online. Most online charity galas, it's safe to say, do not attract hordes of fans swearing their undying loyalty. Ballard has not only been feted by celebrities and treated reverently by outlets ranging from ESPN to Fox News, but was even appointed by President Donald Trump to a council meant to guide federal anti-trafficking policymaking, which he co-chaired. The specific stories that Auer tells are intensely cinematic, bold, heroic, and extremely difficult to fact-check. They're also not the entire truth. An investigation by Vice World News focused on Auer's operations identified a divide between the group's actual practices and some of its claimed successes. What we found aren't outright falsehoods, but a pattern of image burnishing and mythology building, a series of exaggerations that are, in the aggregate, quite misleading. Now Ballard, Tim Ballard, has repeatedly claimed that Auer played a central role in a large anti-trafficking case in New York State, and implied that it helped rescue a victim in that case when in fact, according to court transcripts and other records reviewed by Vice World News, she bravely escaped her trafficker on her own. Multiple law enforcement agencies, ours says it is partnered with or supported, describe their relationships as insubstantial. In response to detailed specific allegations concerning the allegations made in this article sent over a period of several weeks, Auer gave Vice World News two statements which we've included in this story in full, in which they did. Auer has also declined to describe what precisely it does with the millions of dollars it says it spends overseas, citing concerns about operational security, although it did provide a list of countries in which it has worked. Much of Auer's mystique is still focused on that overseas work. During the online gala, which the article cited at the beginning, 
Ballard described a rescue in an undisclosed country in which, he said, Jessica Mass, ours director of aftercare, literally wrestled a padlock away from a trafficker as they were running to lock up and re-imprison young girls whom our and local police had just rescued. Our aftercare team and Jessica saw something was happening and intervened, Ballard told the audience, laid down her life for these girls, for their liberation, and somehow wrestled that padlock out of the hands of that trafficker in this intense moment. He held something up in his hands in his talk, a gold padlock. This is the very padlock that had been used to lock these girls behind a jail cell, he proclaimed triumphantly. Now, a Utah elected official, Davis County Attorney Troy Rawlings, announced in October that his office was investigating our, telling Fox 13, we've received complaints or are in the process of reviewing these complaints. It's not the first time Rawlings has reportedly considered investigating our. The New York Post reported in 2017 that he was contemplating a criminal probe of the organization, which ultimately seems to have not happened. Rawlings told Vice World News that he's currently unable to comment beyond the scope of the original announcement, writing in an email on December 10th. Unfortunately, we can't accommodate your records request or answer any particular questions at this time, on, as the investigation is still vibrant. Several people familiar with the investigation, however, told Vice World News that it concerns whether Auer has, in recent years, made misleading claims to donors and to the public about the work it does, and how directly involved it is in rescue operations. The investigation could also touch on the connection between Auer and current Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes, who has a long public relationship with Auer as an advocate for and participant in their work. The Utah Attorney General's office did not respond to a request for comment, but confirmed that an investigation is in fact underway in a denial of public records request filed by Vice World News. Due to a pending criminal request uh, investigation by outside agencies involving Operation Underground Railroad, all records within our scope of your request are currently classified as protected, the office wrote. Through, through a spokesperson, Auer, a lawyer for which uh, denied in October that it was being investigated, declined to answer questions about the investigation. In a statement to Vice World News, it did say in part, if asked, Auer will cooperate fully with any official inquiry into its operations. Now, one aspect of Auer's work involves its relationship with domestic law enforcement agencies and prosecutors, which it touts as central to its mission. But those relationships have in some cases been thin, and one law enforcement agency that received nearly $200,000 from Auer over a period of several years recently deemed the association simply not worth the bother. While a hefty cumulative sum, said Chris Loftus of the Washington State Patrol, candidly, in an organization of our size and a total multi-year budget well into the billions, it's not significantly budget-impacting. We're quite comfortable with our decision to forego any further donations from them and to avoid further association with an organization that might provide distraction from our core mission. The patrol's work and its ties to our were extensively covered in a New York Times investigation by reporter Michael Winterup this summer. Meanwhile, federal and state agencies that would 
due to the nature of Auer's work, be expected to have relationships or at least familiarity with the group, say they do not. Auer says that due to concerns about operational security and survivor privacy, it can't describe exactly how it spends the millions of dollars it receives in donations on operations abroad. The organization provided Vice World News with a list of 26 countries in which it has worked, and in response to a request for clarification, a list of specific cities or states where it says it has worked abroad, including Phnom Penh, uh, Cartagena, Tripoli, and every one of the 76 provinces of Thailand. That's more specific than what's publicly available in tax documents. The organization said, for instance, in tax filings that it spent $2.746 million in 2018 on assisting law enforcement in freeing sex slaves and providing aftercare for victims in North Africa and the Middle East. An extremely general description of his activities in an extremely broad service area. Reputable and widely known organizations providing aftercare to survivors of trafficking were unfamiliar with our and experts raise serious questions about the work our claims it does. Millions of dollars are going into the organization, flying out of the pocketbooks of devoted supporters who ardently and sincerely want to rescue the world's most vulnerable and endangered children. But it's largely unclear what the organization is doing with that money, and where it is clear, it is not obvious what it's doing is effective. Our, for its part, says that some of the lack of clarity is by design to preserve the necessary privacy and dignity of trafficking survivors. We'll never tell you where they are, Ballard said, near the end of his gala speech, his eyes glistening, as he described the fate of the girls he said Hour had rescued from being padlocked once more into servitude to their traffickers. But they are safe, and they are healing. One of the most curious elements of Auer's domestic operations involves a trafficking survivor with the pseudonym Liliana, whom Ballard has repeatedly discussed and whose story he has frequently invoked while arguing for a wall to be built along the U.S.-Mexico border. Liliana is a real person. Vice World News has identified the trafficking ring she was a victim of and the federal case in which she bravely testified against her abusers. Now, while she testified under a pseudonym, we're not identifying the case to further protect her privacy. But the story she and other survivors told in court, which helped win a conviction against their traffickers, bears little but a broad resemblance to what Ballard has been saying publicly about it. Crucially, contrary to an assertion Hour has, assertion Hour has made in fundraising material, Liliana wasn't found or rescued by anyone. When she was just 17, after years of rape, psychological manipulation, and physical abuse, she escaped on her own. Now, the story Ballard tells about Liliana is different from the one that appears in court documents, though, and significantly more sensational in several key ways. His first public appearance to her appears to have come in a January 2019 Fox News op-ed, while arguing for the construction of a border wall. Quote, not long ago, a 13-year-old girl from Central America, let's call her Liliana, was kidnapped from her village, then trafficked into the U.S. at a location where there is no wall or barrier. From there, she was taken to New York City, where she was raped by American men 30 to 40 times a day. The private anti-trafficking organization I founded over five years ago 
Operation Underground Railroad eventually helped Liliana escape her hell. At no point did she ever testify that she was kidnapped. He described her as slightly younger than she was and claimed that she had been trafficked not long ago when it had in fact been nearly a decade. He incorrectly stated that she'd come from Central America, not Mexico. Finally, he claimed that she had been raped twice as often as the 15 to 20 times a day that Liliana and other trafficked women testified at trial. Ballard also stated that Auer helped Liliana escape her hell. This strongly implies that it helped her flee her traffickers, which is flatly untrue. Three days after the Fox News piece was published, Ballard appeared at a White House event with President Trump where he vigorously argued for a border wall, signing his years as an undercover operator and again told Liliana's story, though without using her name. He stated that he met Ivanka Trump privately, this time lowering the girl's age in the story to 11. Mentioning the location had no wall and somehow connecting it to pornography. Three days later, Ballard went further. Three days later, he published an op-ed in the Deseret News, adding new detail to the story and quoting what he said were Liliana's own arguments for the construction of a border wall. Quote, Liliana was kidnapped at age 11. She was taken by her captors across a southern border at a location where no wall existed. Now, approximately 70% of the border is wallless. Having reflected on her tragic plight, Liliana has, has recently weighed in on the current national debate. This is her supposedly talking. Had there been a wall for me, she declared, my captors would have been forced to take me to a port of entry. A U.S. officer might have seen my distress. Several weeks after that, Ballard referenced Liliana in both in-person and written testimony submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee during hearings about trafficking at the southern border, asserting that he had been, quote, approved by the U.S. Attorney's Office to share details of her experience. Now, public records requests to New York State of Office Victim Services returned zero documents mentioning our or Ballard between 2018 and 2020. The state's Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance said that they couldn't confirm any details of Ballard's story and that the office had no relationship with Auer. The state-funded Response to Human Trafficking Program said they were unfamiliar with both the case as Ballard described it and Auer. Another, Anita Tika, Senior Director of the Anti-Trafficking Program at Safe Horizon, said she has never heard of the case as Ballard described it or of Auer, but that after looking into them, she had serious concerns, including with Ballard's assertion that Liliana had been granting legal status and soon will be a U.S. citizen. That's not really how it works, Tika told Vice. You have to apply for your T visa, assuming you're eligible, and then you'll have to get the T visa, and then there's been a lot of denials. A final concern was Ballard's focus on underage sex trafficking. One small piece of all the trafficking that we see both within the United States and globally and on a border wall, which she described as ludicrous, given the ease with which a trafficking victim can be brought through legally at a port of entry. Now, there's far more that I could recount just from this one article about how Ballard got into this business and how they use video in raids to get an emotional connection to would-be contributors but little evidence of how the organization handles its money. There are many more reports in addition to this one, which I only cited half of this one. 
and that in edited form. I can say that after these investigations, Ballard has now separated himself from Hauer and another organization he ran for Glenn Beck entitled the Nazarene Fund, having learned this from reports of Christian organization Ministry Watch, which I often follow. Given the profound impact he and his organization is having on the Christian community who indulge in the fantastical elements of these stories, now gone Hollywood style in the Sound of Freedom movement with movie with Jesus himself, the QAnon adherent and actor Jim Caviezel playing Ballard, the further revelations that have come to light warrant me continuing the subsequent, subsequent reports in later editions of this program. You know, it saddens me to see Christians getting ravenously embroiled in this topic and further claims of Christian victimization when anyone uses common sense or skepticism that comes with age to inquire further, them taking it as an affront to their faith to ask questions. Beyond their gullibility, I find it curious that they get deeply enamored with this sex-based topic, yet show little interest, by and large, in people similarly, even under worst suffering in dangerous refugee camps as victims of war or despotic regimes. Now, I know why their handlers and the media don't want them to care for the refugees as such. It might evoke some sympathy for immigration that would be a burden on the financial sector for their welfare. But even though Jesus was a refugee in his youth, these Christians don't seem to have a similar purian interest in their plight. It may be possibly a deep-rooted connection to men protecting their women from outsider rapists that the Klan and other demagogue groups have often played on, but I don't know. And I say this as one who wants to see every captive free, as whether a sex slave or any type of slave. Let's close this segment with some music for meditation. I know this may be an unfair association with the song selection and its connection to the story, but Ballard's Paul Bunyan fishing tale type exaggeration of his trafficking experiences, which are compelling enough a topic without such, but maybe not as good for fundraising otherwise, might be forgivable alone if not for exploitative purposes. But the opaqueness of the massive funds that they have collected and further reports at his sudden departure suggest time and again that where there's smoke, there's fire. This time we're going to focus on a one-hit wonder by a couple of nerdy-looking teens with one mean organ and a falsetto, with their performances even making it into that impeccable cinematic blockbuster, It's a Bikini World. Enjoy Liar Liar by the Castaways, thinking about Mr. Ballard, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report.
Well, it looks like we're out of time again, uh, so that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. We will have more to add about this information in a later date. Uh, we will also continue with the review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, which you can find at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other sites to review this and other material. Please send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Till then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, being willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand Telling all my friends